Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Andy F., John Q., Dale H., Ann Hill O., J.C., Matt R., at Plainview Danny, and Jan G. We have on Keith Watson, Portfolio Manager of Geiger Counter Limited, a uranium equity-focused fund under London-based New City Investment Managers Group. The Geiger Counter Fund is listed on the London Stock Exchange under the symbol GCL. Keith, welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Smith Weekly, for inviting me on. So, Keith, uh, give us your background and, and uh, why you ended up coming over to New City and managing the Geiger Fund. Um, well, my background started post-university in 92. Um, having graduated with a degree in applied physics, I went on to become a fund manager with one of the UK life assurance companies, where I spent about five years looking at the resources sector, including the wider remit of energy, oil and gas, and so forth. Um, then went into the banking side of things for a number of years before coming back in to work on the buy side, um, looking at a broad section of natural resource equities and credit um, with CQS, beneath which New City Investment Managers has the Geiger Uranium Fund one of the few that I know of globally to invest in this sector. So uh, on, on that subject, give us the uh, the history of New City, uh, kind of give us an overview of the funds that are held there, and uh, if you don't mind sharing the assets under management. Um, sure. Um, myself and a co-manager, Rob Crayford, um, and our overall um, line head, uh, Franco, we run four funds under the New City umbrella and the main ones that Rob and I look at are focused on broader natural resources, primarily equity, uh, though we do have one fund called New City um, Natural Resources Trust which pays income and um, that's probably the largest one um, to have assets under management of about close to 100 sterling, give or take, in current volatility. Um, we have a another um, fund, obviously Geiger, um, which is in uranium. We have a smaller precious metals-focused fund called Golden Prospect Precious Metals. Um, collectively, those two have assets under management of probably around about uh, 45 million sterling. Um, biased uh, comfortably towards the Geiger Fund. Um, and then over the top of all of that, the current in vogue um, sector is um, credit, and Franco um, runs about 250 million um, of assets under management focused primarily on the high yield market. And um, that's, I think, an idea of the, the overall AUM of the new city funds. 
Well, that, that sounds good. I appreciate the information on that. Um, so, Keith, uh, looking at uranium and, and kind of moving towards the uh, the Geiger Fund, um, give us your view on the state of the uranium sector. What what do you see going forward? Why do you like the sector at this point? Just as a background on our general approach to investment across the board, we tend to try and look for uh, value. Um, I'd say one of the things that help, helps us or allows us to do that is the fact that our investment trusts are what's called closed end, which means they are uh, listed entities in their own right. Um, they're not open-ended funds which can have monies pulled out quite quickly. And I think that has provided us with a, a degree of ability to invest for the longer term um, and allowed, I think, uh, a style of investment which other strategies um, don't really offer. Um, Open-ended hedge fund structures are uh, come and go in terms of the, the volatility of AUM, whereas ours is a little bit more um, secular, a bit more cyclical granted, but generally quite sticky money. Um, as I outlined at the beginning, we look for value, and we would say that right now there are few sectors out there that we see which offer the type of value that the uranium sector has, um, and which has, we think, the catalysts now in place that mean we're moving towards that being realised. Um, the Geiger Fund itself has been in was formed um, as, unfortunately, um, closed-end funds often are at the slightly less opportune time in the prior bull run of the uh, late 2006, early 2007 uh, timeframe. Um, but we think now that the the overbuild and the incremental supply that came on as a result of the prices back then is now very swiftly moving into reverse. And we see ultimately the primary fundamental drivers of supply and demand imbalance building and the sector, in particularly the equities in the sector, um, having been crushed, offer some of the best value as I'd outlined. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, uh, you know, what you say there. I I, I think that there's uh, some significant catalysts on the horizon, and on and on that subject, what do you think? Uh, what do you think some of those catalysts are? Uh, 2019, 2020. Um, the catalysts that I suspect have been widely discussed, certainly among the uh, listenership for this show, um, are the first stage of the. Um, correcting supply-demand imbalance. We've had the mine closures latterly, and most significantly, MacArthur River owned by Cameco, removing some £14 million of annual mined uranium production, or 8% of global supply. I think behind that, but in significance possibly larger, we've have had Kazatomprom remove something like 3% of global supply. But because that is now more significant than, than OPEC um, in controlling some 40% of global primary mine supply, we think that we're very much in a position now where um, we see the oversupply situation correcting very quickly indeed. And we've seen the spot price move up 
as utilities which have and in fact still are deterred from investing in the sector particularly in the US the largest market which is undergoing the section 232 uh, petition uh, for um, security of domestic supply most utilities have been put off contracting and we think will shortly enter a contracting cycle which will necessarily require prices to move higher set against that we still suspect that um, many forecasts for overall supply on the medium term, by which I mean in three, four years' time, are inconsistent with the price expectations that are behind that. And we would say that Cameco is probably the clearest illustration of that. In shutting MacArthur, it announced that it would not be restarting production from that, uh, one of the largest single operations globally until prices reached um, the required level to give it uh, sufficient returns. And looking at its contract book, we would think that that price is probably in the mid 40 US dollars per pound range as a base level, on top of which they'll look for price escalators to provide some participation into possible or perhaps probable price upside from there because this remains an industry which is likely to continue exhibiting extremes of boom and bust. Right now we think we're at the bust stage but with the supply correction coming on we're at a price discovery point at the moment which has been driven by the two largest producers certainly Kazakhstan whilst slightly minor in terms of magnitude I think more meaningful in terms of its overall um, supply globally and I think more meaningfully in terms of magnitude in the short term has been Cameco and I think one of the crucial factors that Cameco's illustration provides is that in satisfying its um, forward contract book which is still running off um, it has closed MacArthur River which sees not only a reduction in primary global mine supply of significant amount but that reverse into it purchasing spot material um, on the market and that has helped lift spot price to the current level which seems more of a psychological um, barrier at around the $30 level than necessarily anything fundamental. Um, in terms of future catalysts I think we have seen the supply discipline come in from Kazatom Prom um, and I think we are starting to see, I think, the economically rational decisions being implemented finally in Japan, where we have seen post Fukushima momentum start to pick up on the restart of their nuclear fleet, which is very significant. Um, not an easy process because they still have to go through um, a substantial local approvals process but the pro-nuclear Abe government is very firmly aware, I think, of the superior economics of restarting installed, low-cost, low-carbon capacity in Japan, as opposed to subsidized um, build out of either wind or solar, which has its place in the overall um, energy mix, um, particularly in the developed markets where nuclear power is typically anything up to 20%, whether that's the UK, where I am currently or the states more, meaningful, more meaningfully as the largest market. 
And in the background to that, I think the other catalysts are um, undiminished. And the biggest driver for nuclear is still out of Asia. And I would have said that is most definitely from China, where they've currently got some what, 45 reactors generating close to 45 gigawatts of annual generating capacity. Uh, but latterly, we've seen, again, very positive noises coming out of India, which claims that it will target the commissioning of some 20 plus reactors by 2030. And that is an underlying demand driver, which is very helpful in terms of providing catalysts to the fundamental basis of the supply demand equation, which we very much look at. So I'd say other catalysts, which are very helpful from a sentiment standpoint, are that the experience outside of Japan in economies, particularly Germany, highlight some of the difficulties of the premature closure of nuclear generating capacity, particularly in the context of the um, global carbon emission reduction targets that um, have gained headlines recently. And the energy vend policy implemented by the coalition government in Germany, which required to get into power the help from the Green Party, has proved a spectacular failure in terms of delivering on the carbon emission reductions targeted by virtue of closing down prematurely its nuclear generating capacity with a sole focus on primarily renewables from wind. Um, it's exposed itself to brownouts. Um, certainly over a cold period, the weather conditions don't lend themselves to wind and that risk has not diminished. And as a result of which, they have either had to import nuclear power from France or, as has been the case more recently, refire some of the uneconomic gas-fired um, facilities and indeed start to restart its coal-fired generating capacity. I think this is likely to prove um, a classroom study of how not to do things. Hopefully that will be um, taken into a very serious consideration by the uh, Trump committee, which is currently investigating the security of energy supply in the States. And I think nuclear, probably unlike steel or aluminium, which have had uh, 232 support, is probably very much the one that um, lends itself to domestic security of supply, much as petroleum reserves have uh, previously during the um, energy crisis of the 70s that prompted that strategic petroleum, petroleum reserve to be um, started. I think there's a very good case that some of that could perhaps be switched into, into uranium, if for no other reason than to provide uh, from a, an oil self-sufficiency basis the equivalence insurance to its current economically competitive installed nuclear fleet. Those, I think, are the, are the bases for the catalysts that we see going forward. Um, it's been helpful through some of the IPO process that I think has Atomprom, rather than sell directly into the spot market via trade intermediaries, is now, I think, going to adopt a more direct approach to utilities, which would be something akin to, maybe a slight discount to, the type of pricing that Cameco is no doubt aiming for with the contracting cycle that it expects to materialize over the next year or two, given the runoff in its current books. 
and that is all very helpful in terms of the the outlook for this high value attractively valued sector well you covered you covered quite a bit and uh there's certainly a lot of a lot of views that you you and I both share that uh, we 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 certainly agree on and i uh, i think that there are, there's a lot of catalysts going forward and and certainly some in the near term you know section 232 is obviously something that's uh really important to to get off the desk i think that'll be uh certainly something that'll happen near term um and then of course you know long term contracting cycle you know 2019 through you know 2024 uh, or maybe maybe it might be a little bit earlier than that. So you got a lot of that going, and then you have, you know, France backing up on on uh, their, uh, you know, nuclear power plant, you know, closures and so forth. You know, from 2025 to 2035. Uh, you know, just completely, uh, just a lot of different things. Whether it's uh, you know Taiwan, uh, you know, keeping theirs, or you know South Korea, uh, really yeah. just kind of pushing off. Um, you know, and, and Germany is just hilarious. You know, they shut down, you know, shut down their own capacity, but then, but then import it. I mean, and and you mentioned classroom and brownouts, and and I think, I think that these central planners should should be sent a, a copy of uh, Sim City, that old computer game. I mean, good grief, I, they they can't even <laughs> they can't even keep keep it going, and uh, it's just it, it's really interesting to see the policy changes that are happening. And uh, you know, of course, Japan—that's that's of course positive as well. And uh, they're slowly coming back, and and the inventories are are no longer a, a concern with Japan. Um, and then you mentioned you know Cameco coming in and buying on the spot market. I, I wanted to ask you this real quick: what do you what do you see in 2019 with Cameco needing to fulfill, fulfill some some requirements in the spot market? Do you see the spot market in 2019? as maybe a place that still has some weak hands that are willing to part ways with some inventory at lower prices? Or do you see uh, Cameco's involvement in 2019 really kind of just maybe breaking that 30 level and maybe heading up? Um, I think this sector, I think many sectors, in fact, um, struggle to plan very far forward. And I think one of the factors that um, can have a very much more material impact in the volatility of the commodity price is ultimately sentiment and expectation. At the moment, the sort of levels of inventory that might be available are are very moot, um, and in what form that takes is difficult to categorically state. But I would say that the buffer inventories of utilities can at one moment seem to be an overhang in the US maybe two and a half years, but probably down because I think most of them haven't been doing anything other than tick over business um, since the proposed 232 petition was requested by the two US companies. But that can very quickly turn in the opposite direction, in particular as the contracts roll off. Um, so we've seen some pickup in spot market activity which um, you would expect to be the natural result of that utility buying process. I think it's also partly reflecting the removal of what would have previously been contango uh, role yield playing intermediaries, which on a flat forward curve that we currently see has been eliminated. And now I think the bias is more for the startup of 
UPC or uranium participation equivalents, whether that's the very material um, additions by the likes of yellow cake here in the UK or analogues of that. Um, I think those will increasingly be a trend here. Hedge funds certainly have been starting to inquire, if not develop, yellow cake holding licenses um, in order to buy and hold um, southern material. And I think that alongside Cameco's purchasing could very quickly see the herd instinct of um, utility buying departments flip from what's in it for me to fear of being out of the market. And I think that is going to be a very major driver to, yes, absorb some of the lingering inventory that is out there. But I think it is now a question of slightly opaque on timing, but we have to believe that we're very much in the price discovery moment now to the point that if Cameco can't get prices above here, we're staring down the barrel of phase one Cigar Lake, uh, one of the next largest producers not being expanded into phase two. And, you know, another coincident um, slug of production probably coming away from from Cameco. So we're really at a tipping point now across the industry. And um, that's how we see it, really. Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the some of the, the the bull case or the bear case on on some some concerns folks have, and I kind of have you know two two points on this. So some think that a risk to the uranium bull thesis is Kazataprom ramping up production when prices rise. Could you share your thoughts on the current state and outlook of Kazataprom? How eager are they to increase production during a rising price environment, and how long would it take? And do you see them focusing more on term contracts over the spot market? Kazat and Prom have adopted some very rational um, management policies as a result of their recent IPO. I think that the main one being that they have already set up their own internal trading division, which will no longer sell into the intermediary market, which has been something that has provided um, or acted to depress the market and, and ultimately flatten the curve. They will now, and I think in tandem with Cameco, be much more coordinated in their approach to the market. And without doubt, in our conversations with them, they will now be looking at contracting over spot sales. And I think any rational management, particularly that which is just listed into a, a transparent market, uh, will be pursuing that value over volume um, approach for the time being. That undoubtedly, I think, will be targeting Cameco minus X, whatever that level of X is, um, but certainly materially higher than, than the current uranium price. Ultimately, I don't see why they would feel the need given the price discovery at the moment, to make the situation worse by following policy of old, ultimately. Right. And and do you see do you see Kazataprom at this point with their assets and their lack of uh, expansion spending and, and, and CapEx uh, towards their assets? Do you see really Kazataprom at this point as really, uh, in these prices, a declining production force? Um, I, w I would put it in the context of the supply-demand assumptions that are out there, whether it's from UXC or many of the um, secondary banks that largely base their assumptions um, on that same data, 
One thing that I think is in there at the moment is that Kazatomprom and Cameco will restart their production in the next two to three years. Cameco and Kazatomprom, um, unless they see the price reaction come through required to do that, won't. And so that's the critical fact that we think underpins the improvement and the outlook for this sector over the medium term. And I think, though, I would say that once that price has been achieved, whatever you want to debate about that level, we would say probably in the mid-40s as a base, but with price escalators for the likes of Cameco, as I think I'd outlined earlier, then both will likely restart production from their operations. That's why in our portfolio, we would probably use that as a base a sort of centre of gravity around which we would pivot our targeted investments, those which will make a good return for investors at 45. And then we still have a holding of companies which will make a lot of money when prices move up to the next level. But that is a relatively smaller portion of our AUM, call it 10% at the moment. But those are call options in a sector which is where equities in most cases are call options. Um, so we are looking at those projects which will be globally meaningful, the likes of the um, Western Athabasca, those which can make treble uh, NPVs at uh, $45 versus what is currently discounted. Um, so that would include things like the next gens, probably in some enlarged format with the likes of, of Fission and maybe stretching further north up that trend into the likes of the Cameco Arriva Pure Point joint venture um, on the border with NextGen. And that's really, I think, just trying to illustrate our positioning in this sector because of these dynamics that we feel very strongly will play out. So on, on there, there seems to be a kind of a pre prevailing uh, theme that's that's going on with the thought that, that maybe at $45 uranium, that there, there's going to be enough production all of a sudden come back online to to maybe satisfy the market. And I want to want to ask you a little bit about this. So even with the obvious lag of the fuel cycle, we know we know the fuel cycle can be 18 to 24 months, um, yeah. and the time it takes to restart uh, existing operations and to ramp up. Uh, can easily be, uh, depending on the mine, uh, you know, six months to 12 months. Um, where do you see on on the demand side? Do you do you, or actually on the supply capacity side? Do you do you see when uranium gets to $45 a pound? Uh, do you see that that's kind of a a holding spot, um, or do you see it moving higher? Because if you look at the long term. A little bit, you know, a little bit further out. Uh, even even with these restarts of these existing operations, uh, do, do you see that there's enough there to really sustain the market at, at those prices? Um, I think that will depend uh, to a degree on the extent to which China continues to pursue its rollout strategy. And our view would be that it is very clearly a very important part of their overall energy mix. But equally, I think it will depend on a balanced view of the required energy mix um, in some of the more developed markets where nuclear power represents 
you know, in the States, 19, 20%, UK similar, um, South Korea similar. As you had highlighted, I think we've got some um, initial indications that um, rational behavior is is making a bit of a stand, whether that's in South Korea, probably more meaningful than Taiwan, which has, what, two or three reactors, but nevertheless is, is helpful in significance. Japan is, I think, a very useful case in point in Arbe's realization that installed capacity is much cheaper than investing in brand new capacity elsewhere, which may have its own issues. Um, and we're not really saying that nuclear is the, the holistic answer to everyone. It's nevertheless an important contributor to the overall delivery of energy, which I think is probably going to be one of the key drivers to improving standards of living moving forwards. Um, and I think the US 232 and what France does, you've said it's already rode backwards in terms of its target for uh, reducing or watering down slightly its nuclear um, generating capacity. Uh, but, you know, 232 is an involved process and not necessarily quick. And I think as with the government shutdown at the moment, in fact, coming up with an answer, the longer things are delayed, the longer it takes to put investment in, the greater the chance of uranium prices overshooting on the $45 mark. It would also potentially depend on how governments look to build up strategic reserves on that um, sentiment side and, and how reactive utility buyers can prove to be. Um, equally so can governments and, you know, policy to maybe switch some strategic petroleum reserves or India to build up some strategic reserves could suddenly generate quite a significant swing in um, in sentiment and pricing behavior over a very short period of time. So I think 45 would be, as I said, really our base case. But quite frankly, um, the boom bust behavior of this market shows absolutely no sign that that has changed. The hangover from the prior boom has been the deferral of supply cuts coming through because of the long-term contracting nature of the business. And it's really that which is the root cause of some of the sustained boom-bust characteristics. And, and we're just coming off the back of that bus now. Right. And that will follow yeah. through in terms of the site, you know, the other signals that we see. We've had bottlenecks in conversion pricing. You know, we've had near $10 increase in conversion costs transfer straight through to the U308 price. And we're now seeing a modest, but from a, a, a very low base, move up in the SWU pricing. And ultimately that might be related to the 18 month, 24 month fuel cycle process of contracting. But you know, we know that that is going to be a double pendulum effect on the, the overall supply response of the market which ultimately will move in lockstep with the improved pricing across the whole fuel cycle. And um, that we have seen the initial move in flattening at a higher level on the spot price and the forward curve. We've seen the conversion price start to rise. And we think we're now starting to see some potential more positive outlook for the SWOO price, which is consistent. Yeah, I think those are all good indicators. Um, of, a, of, a, of a coming healthier uh, market situation, and I think with uh, with Cameco, you know, whether, when you come into long term contracting with Cameco and Kazataprom, 
and you get into these contracts and, and, and you know, utilities ask for delivery on these dates or so forth and the capacities uh, of these of these projects coming back online, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, how that gets managed. And when you have like a, you know, we talked about next gen and so forth, you know, sure, we can we can get you a contract, but, uh, you know, we, we got to build the mine and that's going to take some some uh, significant time. Uh, to get that online and actually get that ramped up and producing. And so it's going to be interesting to see kind of who who and how the gap <laughs> is filled, uh, you know, 2020 to 2023. It's just going to be all these things require so much time. And like you said, too, the longer the price stays down and kind of beat up and the longer these things take to kind of play out, like you said, it's it's all points towards uh, certainly a, a potential overshoot, and I think that's important for people to to keep in mind. Um, so, Keith, do you see uh, do you see any further on mine closures? Do you see any further closures occurring before the uranium price starts moving higher? And with that, do you see any scheduled closures like Ranger and Cigar being on time? Mine closures will continue to follow the runoff in the forward contracting book. And that could still include some serious questions for some of the, the larger um, visible and listed entities such as Cameco. I think things like Paladin um, have certainly looked at the situation, but probably will stay offline. Some of the other production is is probably contracted. Um, things like Uzbekistan was tied up by the Chinese a few years ago now in a, quite a substantial deal. But, you know, that's a relatively small, what, 4% of global production um, and is effectively an extension of the um, Kazatomprom trend. But the risk is that other mines do, um, whether or not the overall mine closes, because that can come with its own liabilities. Um, maybe things just go on to... Um, reduced operating stance but for the time being i would say that the risk is more likely that there is further supply reduction but that might actually be secondary sources such as as the SWU price moves up so it becomes um, marginally less economic to juice the u308 uh, for the length of time than was previously the case and an underfeeding might become less obvious um, but I think that's at the margin at the moment. I would say, though, that we've had enough at the moment to push the market into a deficit. The next major factor to come into investors' horizons will be the timing, which is currently forecast for those operations to come back on, which is the, the main thrust of our argument at the moment. Most people seem to think that both operations will ramp back up in a couple of years. At the current price, we don't think that's the case. And so we have to go through this price discovery machination and we're in it. So now it's a case of let's see how the price reacts. On the topic of the Chinese, with the, you know, the, the, the HUSAB operation and uh, buying the Rossing project, uh, do you see these, these Chinese projects that are more or less kind of just taken off? Do you see that the Chinese is looking to supply into long-term contracting outside of their own needs? or into the spot market with these types of assets that they're kind of just taking over. Do you see it as kind of a, as a national play by, by China to basically secure supply for their own needs? Or do you see China 
wanting to be more of a participant in the global market? Um, I think China most definitely wants to become a dominant force in the global market for delivering nuclear power. And I think that is being played out. They've already been able to take the opportunity to put their foot on assets, whether it's the uh, fissions of this world or via intermediaries, maybe you might say um, the next gens of this world. They've taken positions in Paladin. They've recently acquired the option on the restart of um, Rio's Rossing operation next to Husab in Namibia. And I think that's all with a view to them being self-sufficient, not only internally on their fuel requirements, but also in diversifying supply so that it can fulfill the rollout of that homegrown, well, it's not even homegrown, the technology that they are now delivering at a rapid pace in terms of the number of reactors per annum being commissioned in in China to emulating that, whether it be in the UK, uh, probably taking up positions from Hitachi and Toshiba um, here, um, or in the US or South America. I think it's very got global ambition written on um, beyond a, a China first type of, of policy in this. And it's been given the opportunity because um, some of the prior ownership of this technology was the US. Um, and was France, and those countries no longer have been giving it the support. Bill Gates at the New, the new Year um, write-up that he gave is probably right. More funding has to go into this as a significant contributor to the energy mix solution um, in the States and globally. And at the moment, the money is in China. Right. Yeah. And, and Bill's right about that. So, and we've, we've talked about this before the U S has completely fallen behind on the global stage for, for leading in nuclear. And maybe, maybe there's a chance that maybe Canada or the United States will come out with, with maybe, maybe become uh, kind of le- leading the edge a little bit on SMRs. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out, but you're right. You know, Russia is more or less the the leader right now on the global stage for, for expanding nuclear uh, the whole nuclear package. And, uh, you know, China is certainly competing with Russia, but I, I kind of see right now that Russia is kind of leading that that attack. Um, so on, on China, one more time. So with the publicly listed companies, do you see the Chinese as, as a good partner for these publicly listed companies? I mean, you see you see these these companies that have Chinese partners, uh, you know, whether their their participation with Paladin in the, in the past, which which has had its problems. Uh, and then you see China as these Chinese uh, firms as, as major shareholders and maybe maybe a fission or maybe these other kind of, uh, you know, maybe a Greenland or an ACAP. Uh, they kind of take a large position in these companies. Do you see the Chinese really as a, as a good partner for the publicly listed companies? Um, I think, broadly speaking, um, that's probably the case. I think there is frequently a perception that maybe it's in their interests to oversupply to keep the price down in order to um, keep the overall cost of delivery down if they can take the value through the chain. Uh, but I think that is probably wide of the mark. Um, you know, they have committed to develop projects such as HUSAB, and I would say that more typically. Um, I mean, I've been down there and seen the ore. It is very abrasive. The type of milling that it requires is um, a bit more challenging. 
and I'm not really that surprised that it's been more costly to commission and ramp up. And they, I don't think, have ramped up as aggressively as they might have if they were to take that Machiavellian approach, which has previously been mooted in things like iron ore. Ultimately, yes, they are a big partner, but I don't think they're looking to uh, play such a big game. They have their own books to balance at the same time, and they would probably be better in trying to put some of that capital to work in developing and spending on the reactors, which is actually the main cost component of delivering nuclear energy over the uh, the elasticity or lack of it in uh, in demand pricing for uranium. So I don't think that this is the same as the that type of argument that was deployed in, say, iron ore. I think, though, they have been very clever in taking this opportunity uh, to benefit themselves in getting a security of supply of a commodity which is more costly to produce in China by putting their foot on assets outside of China, which also helps them deliver a global strategy um, and take market share on delivering full value through the chain of um, nuclear power. And I think there's a very good case put forward by Bill Gates that actually security of energy supply isn't a problem until it is, and, um, and very often that's too late. And a bit like umbrellas, you buy them when, the, uh, when it's hot and sunny, not when it's raining. And I think people should be buying more of this right now because things are pointing in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think there are some interesting issues surrounding what you said. Um, so moving on just a little bit. Uh, so some investors believe developers with projects can, that can achieve production during a new bull cycle will provide the biggest gains. What is your view on sticking with a development story, the potential dilution under this scenario versus a company that looks for a buyout in an undeveloped project? What are your thoughts on this? And do you see that one strategy is better than the other? Um, I think I'll, I'll, I think I see that question. Um, in terms of how I would see it and how our fund is positioned, we would look at the quality of the project as one of the fundamental aspects to it. But equally, I think there is a case um, to look for projects which maybe can be switched back on at the right price. And um, at the time right now, I would say that the implied price on things such as Cameco in the 50s, and assuming MacArthur River comes back on stream, um, is perhaps not as good value as um, being in a project which is unfunded through development, but which has a, and will have, we think, a material impact on the cost curve overall with strategic importance and which have already had some of that interest expressed in terms of partnerships with um, Fission or NextGen. And you know that is where we are in terms of positioning our investments on that cost curve. And we think the strategic importance of that will, will play out. And um, I would say that we've got a little bit of a barbell on that in that the other projects that we like happen to be in the States and they're very small market cap. Um, we, one of our largest positions is in UR Energy, which put forward the 232 petition. Uh, but there we think that they have, they are going slow at the moment to generate tick over cash flow. Um, and we think they would be the type of capacity that would benefit from this price discovery 
um, that we feel is currently taking place and has further momentum to run. Um, Kaz Atom Prom will do, but the, the cost of production there is lower, even if we look at the full cycle economics of bringing on new well sites um, and rolling those out. Um, and for choice, we would have to weigh up the pros and cons of expanding Pathfinder and, and some of the other expansion opportunities um, in the likes of your energy um, over even perhaps Kazatomprom. But, you know, we have a little bit of both Kazatomprom, but we have more your energy and then we have more next gen just to give a flavor for our portfolio position. Right. And I want to I'll ask you about some of that here in a moment. Um, I think I think that there in relation to this question, there is an there's in my view an optimal blend. Uh, you know, there's there's there there are the near term producers that can potentially bring a cash flow, you know, maybe like a, a UR energy or a, uh, energy fuels. And so you have these different types of pieces that kind of put together a portfolio, um, different strategies that that come over different contexts of time and kind of what the the uh, catalyst might be. So like a 232 in the U.S., you want to have maybe some exposure because if there is a positive outcome there, that could possibly uh, cause some of those U.S. specific uh, focused companies to to do well. And then, you know, in context of timing, you know, maybe there's maybe there's an African project that can come online relatively quick, quickly because of the permitting and the time frame to bring those online. And then then you have other optionality like uh, Athabasca Basin type projects. You know, those those are there for reasons of jurisdictional reasons and some other reasons. And obviously, uh, the, the next gen deposit is is a very, very uh, high quality deposit. Um, so you can kind of put together a blend of different things. And uh, so I think that's what, what the question was kind of going after. And of course, these companies that maybe build a portfolio of, of good assets and then maybe look for a buyout, you know, that's certainly one way to go about it. Uh, I think the pool of buyers at this point in the market is pretty you know, limited to maybe three or four parties. But uh, I think that that is certainly an option as well. And so there's, I think there's a way you can kind of structure a portfolio to take advantage of all these different things in context of jurisdiction timing, uh, you know, 232 catalysts, uh, stuff like this, and even even optionality plays, speculations on, you know, uh, <laughs> a good example I, I love to use is Virginia uh, Energy Resources. Yeah. Uh, it's a court, it's a court case. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's some different ways to kind of play it. So moving on, um, what are your, what is your favorite jurisdiction for uranium? And do you be believe that uranium jurisdictions compete in different ways in context of timing, more or less red tape, capital costs, and speed to market? Um, that's a thoughtful question. Um, I would say our favored jurisdictions are still, and by virtue of size, somewhat determined by where the deposit is, um, rather than necessarily um, purely down to politics, but I think that Canada has shown itself and will continue to show itself, particularly in the important Athabasca Basin, to be open for business for the uranium sector and not really trying to inhibit it. Um, for that reason, I would say that that would be one of our top jurisdictions. The US has a slightly different take in that I think you just have to be careful which state you are located in, but you know, the the state of Wyoming in particular, which has now taken over federal ownership of the permitting process, I think is is open for business, helpful for things like UR Energy. I think Texas probably is. 
you know, Kazakhstan has its issues. And I think probably from the political standpoint there, we would be more aware of our position sizing in that region, but nevertheless feel it's tolerable. I mean, the whole industry is ultimately dependent on the policy of that that company and that government because of its dominance in primary production. But I think we also have to appreciate that there is a fuel cycle here and you know we can't escape the integrated nature of enrichment capacity which is dominated principally by Russia and um, that is a segment that you can't really invest in. So to an extent we can try and pretend that we know about politics for the mining jurisdictions. All of that could be held at gunpoint by a chess game between political powers led by the likes of Russia, which may still have some influence over Kazakhstan. But to come back to the, the nub of the question, I think we would have a lot of comfort with the, the typical Western um, economies, which have some of the higher standards of, of production technique, which have um, ownership rights, and that probably would be uh, just to cover off areas like of the likes of Australia, I think has proved very difficult, but arguably it's hard to become more difficult when they banned it in some of the more important producing states. Jabaluka would be an interesting project, but there does have more pointed issues with regards to Aboriginal rights. Um, Africa, yes, we would look at. Um, we do have in our sort of tale of higher cost projects some exposure to that, but the kind of grades that we see there that we would typically focus on mean that the economics are not as favourable in the kind of medium uh, term pricing that we would see. But nevertheless, we'll probably see some optionality on the share price moves come from that. But we feel more comfortable just weighting our portfolio as we discussed a couple of times already. And I would I would add uh, certainly Utah Utah's got to be added in the states uh, Utah's a, a key jurisdiction and a fabulous state for their economic yeah. model and, and how they've got it set up and Wyoming certainly as well um, and you know Namibia uh, West Africa is is, is fantastic I, I've spoken to a number of uh, folks in, in that region and uh, we had uh, had a, had a conversation with Osino Resources. Uh, recently, uh, Haya Don, uh, the gentleman there that's running the running the operation, he's a was born in Namibia, but he's a, you know ger- from German descent, and uh, that country certainly at this point number one in my view uh, uh, is just by far by far a, f- a fabulous jurisdiction in, in Africa, if, if not probably the best in that region. Um, so I, I think that there's some good some good uh, situations that may may become of there. I would generally. Um completely concur with that in that the sort of population density in Namibia I think lends itself to um, some of the operational um, smooth operational activity that can take place there but equally I think the government there has shown itself to be less volatile in its application of um, fiscal regimes than has been the case in Niger for example or South Africa increasingly and um, and for that reason, I think it's still probably a destination where companies would be prepared to invest, which is a crucial question in delivering projects. Absolutely, it's it's an interesting situation in, in Africa. You know, South Africa we can we can discuss another time. Uh, but uh, certainly, there are some operators. Uh, you know, I, I got a 
jobs. You know, the Ivanhoe mine, Robert Friedland, uh, he, he just he just tends to go to the uh, the worst jurisdictions, but he seems to somehow make it work over and over again. And so it's it, it's interesting. There are some people who can manage to twist enough arms to get something done, but uh, yeah, certainly a, a topic for another conversation. Are you um, are you of the opinion that uh, that there is a certain optimal portfolio strategy with regards to how you would structure your various holdings? Uh, let's use the Geiger Counter Fund as as the uh, as kind of the the example. What, what are those kind of broad considerations uh, that you kind of look at with the Geiger Fund? Um, I'll bring it straight back to I think a point I made earlier, which is what do we think is the optimum point on the cost curve to kind of aim at? and where do we see the sort of relative risk reward of investment and um, in the context of that earlier question in terms of where the deposits lie where the we see some of the best by which i mean lowest cost lowest risk in terms of fiscal regime change being in the likes of um, the western athabasca currently with projects held by the likes of NextGen, which is the sort of fulcrum between Fission and Cameco Arriva Pure Point joint venture in the north. I think that would be where we would currently see our, that's where we are more weighted in terms of our Geiger exposure. Uh, we still have uh, that sort of cost end of the spectrum. We took, we participated in Kazatom Prom. We'll see whether or not that one makes it into the, the ETF following its list. And that is really more of a strategic uh, positioning at the moment. We still have some physical, but I think our our trend has been to use that to reduce the effective gearing that we have on the fund. Being closed end, we are allowed to invest more than we actually have in funds and, and gear it up. And some of that gearing is effectively um, offset by having um, slightly less beta from the physical um, equities in UPC and the likes of Yellowcake. Uh, but we would probably be tempted to roll that now into uh, slowly, but probably steadily into things like the low end of the cost curve, which is currently generating cash flow. So the likes of Kazatom Prom would be a case in point. And then we'll see how things progress with regards ISR type of production, which is funded and which can be switched back on relatively quickly from the likes of UR Energy. I would add that... Uh, um, just to the point on the 232, because I think it's deterred investment or buying that no matter what the outcome, there is a good chance that the contracting book will start to pick up again, um, irrespective when we get to the sort of end of that process, a process which we'd probably expect to be delayed perhaps by a month, given the government shutdowns that have, have taken place, that wouldn't be unreasonable. And then we've got the tail I would describe it of higher cost producers, which you know needs no less than $65 a pound to even consider raising money, really. Um, but where we see, you know, still some considerable upside in the move to $45, it gets that much closer to to 65 uh, from there, and we would see those behaving commensurately quite well. That's how we see it. And there is a bit of an overlay as to which jurisdictions those are. Some of the higher cost ones typically are in the Australias or the, the Africas of this world. Um, but, you know, some are in the, the Americas. And let's not forget that portfolios from companies such as UEC also have projects which are um, in uh, sort of South American districts as well. 
and um, and so there are hidden assets within those below the um, those entities below the sort of headline uh, discussed projects and the likes of UR Energy, which can which can come out and uh, and actually see some value ascribed. I, I wanted to ask you for, for the audience that that, that doesn't know. Um, you know, kind of, kind of how you guys might look at it, but give us, give us just, just give us a quick example of when you look at an Explorco, a developer or a producer, what are the kind of the key differences you look at when you're evaluating whether or not it's something that you might consider for the fund? Um, I think that we would look at the, all of the fundamentals that you would consider that go into making up a bankable feasibility study and ultimately end up with a an attractive cost of production very difficult to to single out specific factors um, but you know that would include obviously grade i think that would be a given um, the distribution of that grade um, how nuggety it might be the type of rock that it sits within uh, the depth of that rock the topography that goes around it, the, the social license that surrounds that, which I think links in with management ability at the top to link all of those together to a point where we see a realistic chance that this project could be developed. There are, of course, those political considerations, how long it might take to get permits, how long it might take to get export licenses and um, radioactive handling licenses, those things I think are probably more in the the bailiwick of the the, the management ability uh, to deal with the the governments and how connected they are um, with that. Um, it's not just about grades. I'd say it's really more a focus on the cost of of production, which certainly ha that has a bearing on. But you know there are instances where lower grade projects will work whether that's not necessarily just isr though the main focus of ours would be that that represents the um and intuitively this is the case the um it's also present at the lower end of the cost curve but you know that comes with um economics that aren't just sort of immediate cash cost of production but the full cycle economics of reinvesting in header wells and drill programs to roll out the fields and um, the porosity of the sandstones of the roll fronts, if that's the case on the ISR. Lots of technical factors come into it and it's very difficult to single them out. Particularly, we have to sift through quite a lot, but the easiest way is just to look at where and how confident we are in the, the cost of production being delivered upon. And I think we've given several times over now the sort of um, our view of of the landscape and the cost curve and the deliverability um, from the ISR producers, um, whether that's the lowest cost in Kazatom Prom or, or maybe uh, Uranium One if, uh, if you've any credit, um, or the slightly higher cost US in situ production um, to the hard rock types of um, developments that are out there in the Athabasca. Uh, some of them actually have strange optionality like Denison that at its Wheeler River um, is now looking at potential um, desktop uh, stroke PEA type assessments of, um, of some of its zones for ISR because some of them are on sandstone as opposed to the hard rock itself. So um, I think that's been, a, that's been a very helpful 
uh, turn of events for its uh, reconsidering of, of, a, of a main project that it holds. I hope that gives some kind of flavor for it. Yeah, no, I, no, I think it's good. Uh, you know, <laughs> grade can be diluted, and and it's not all about just operating costs. It's all about what's what's the what's the GNA cost? What's the total total all in cost of these operations? Because as you know, uh, not all managements are created equal, and uh, while yeah. some managements might uh, keep their costs uh, in line, um, you know, so sometimes a, a low grade, uh, you know project in say in Africa for example uh, could could be economic depending on how manage, management's expertise how effective they are uh, the the overall total costs uh, you know whereas maybe a high grade project with a management team that that may pay themselves excessively and, and may have high GNA costs high development costs etc may may face uh, you know maybe some issues and so it's it's really a blend I, I agree with you I think that uh, uh, high grade projects can be destroyed uh, if if they're not properly managed, and uh, so I think that you you really got to look at all the aspects and consider all those. So I think it's uh, you know key key to, to consider everything across the board. Um, I think and that's absolutely right. And, and one of the other factors that I think might um, that we would also highlight is that you know we do look at things on a fully diluted basis, and in particular try and look carefully at those companies where perhaps prior debt has been converted um, or extended and where you know on the assumption that prices move back to 45 and share prices recover actually you know we start to hit buffers in terms of the the rate at which share prices can appreciate because they get um, temporary workouts of of warrants of stock of conversion and um, you know we just take a lot of that into into consideration on top of the um, the overall project assessment that we would try and make. And and your comment on on 232 uh, is I, I agree. I think that uh, negative or positive outcome uh, to me is a net positive for the industry. Uh, so let's let's be, let's get that off the table. I think that's uh, I think it's positive regardless of the outcome at this point. So moving on, uh, NextGen is a substantial holding of the Geiger Fund. Why do you like NextGen, and what do you think? Is there something that maybe investors are missing with with NextGen at this point? Um, I'd like to think it's confidence in the outlook for the industry, rather than specifically missing out anything on NextGen, which does a a pretty good job, I think, of of keeping in touch with investors such as ourselves um, on the specifics of its project. I think um, an appreciation of its move to arguably overcost the tails and waste treatment is something that might not be as obvious a benefit to um, some investors, but we feel will pay back on the theoretically higher cost of, of underground storage of tails um, in terms of the speed of permitting. And um, I think that could help that project along as the leader in a, a wider district development for some kind of shared infrastructure, scalable infrastructure that could bring in other projects in that region. Just understanding that, you know, there is um, a locality there which has some kind of, of benefit and that can build momentum favorably. But I think that's probably one aspect of behavior that I think that management team has, has done well. Um, is that underappreciated? It's difficult to tell. I'd like to say so. 
I think our view on it would be that you know the the forty five fifty dollar mark you know that's a share price which can uh, an NPV at least which can can travel from here versus say a Cameco where you know we see the share price already discounting something higher than that and so that's where we sort of balance the risk reward of our um, investment decisions um, but you know there's no doubt that it still has to go through some um, funding in order to deliver that project. Uh, but with those kind of adaptations on the on the back end, it might prove easier than some skeptics might think. Certainly, that was is what we would hope. Yeah, I think that there's uh, the facilities in that region. Uh, obviously, it's got to come. People would think it was got to come from next gen, and I think you made some good points there. And also the fact that uh, having having a facility, having full facilities in that region, um, would certainly provide. Uh, maybe some other opportunities for other projects in that area, uh, like you suggested there. So I think that's a interesting point you brought up. Um, so UR Energy is another large holding in the fund. Why do you like UR over some of the other U.S. producer developers? Um, it's developed. Um, its costs are challenged, not unusual in the current environment, but by virtue of the facilities, the permitted um, full cycle facilities that it has in place, by virtue of the fact that it's in the US, which is deficient in its domestic production. I think those are some key aspects which stand any investment of that type um, out. We'll see what the shakedown of 232 actually does yield, but we think that that one is is again a little bit like a next gen in terms of the leverage that the share price will return and the management has shown itself to be quite bold and I think has managed its contract book one it had a contract book in place um, which is very helpful it has relations with its customers that have allowed it to move around that contract at the moment it's pulled some forward so that it can limit equity dilution during this period of price discovery across the industry and I think it has an awful lot of expansion potential not only from scaling up the back of the IX facilities that it has but from extending mine life with other neighboring assets that it has and in the context of its cost of production it's still adequate um, on relatively few pounds which arguably unfairly distribute the G&A cost for that group it's still washing its face on its contract price, but you know, realistically, that will make decent money in the the mid 40s, and um, and I think that's that's really why we quite like it. A few reasons. So yeah, from a certainly from a producer near near term producer, you know, turn turn it back on. Uh, certainly, UR Energy and, and Energy Fuels probably have the best proposition set up in that in that case for a a, a producer. Um, so in in the fund, back to the the Geiger fund. So not in your top holdings, but there are some other uranium businesses that are that are not in in the top holdings. Are there some that you want to mention or you like at this point in time? Um, I probably would just keep those um, off off the radar um, for the time being. Um, we it's a fairly limited universe to invest in. And um, I would say that those that aren't in the top five um, are similar in the top, the next five down. And then we've got some of the more leveraged opportunities behind it. I would include things like Paladin, 
which as you say is much more of a, a binary decision as to whether or not that does or doesn't switch back on at some stage uh, but that gives you an idea for some of the optionality in that tail of, of exposure that we have um, but we also have some of the others um, I'd say energy fuels actually has quite a, a wide mix of, of potential production not just from we think the uh, the gem that was uranerts but um, from some of its hard rock and mill exposure but that's actually quite a big position in the fund that you would be able to see quite easily um, from the accounts the rest of them are all relatively small a bit of a spread of risk and I wouldn't necessarily highlight them. You mentioned things like ACAP. Um, I think that one is is currently more coal-related, uh, the extent to which it takes forward some of its um, its operations um, on that front. But certainly, we hold a little bit of that, a very small amount. Um, I wouldn't highlight anything particularly. Okay, appreciate the insights on that. And, and uh, on, on the portfolio position size, I want to ask you this. Uh, you know, so NextGen is the largest in the fund right now. How comfortable are you uh, in terms of position size with the fund? Do you see as like a, a 16, 17% as kind of the max you would go? Or, or, or depending on conviction, would you uh, step it up a notch? Or, or what, what's your thoughts on that? Um, that's approaching the upper end. Um, I mean, don't forget that part of the reason that it's at that position size is the fact that we've held it for a long time. So we were buying this. Um, you know, in the 30 cents mark. And so much of that is down to performance. But just because it's up here doesn't mean that we lose confidence in it. I think the developments in the project that they have put forward so far are extremely sensible. Um, and it's still a project that will do very well. The real call here is is the market. Um, we think we've positioned the portfolio pretty well. Turnover is minimal because we think we're in the right names. We still think we'll get some exceptional performance from the likes of the top holdings that we have. Otherwise, we wouldn't be there. Um, and I think right. we've tried to give a, a feel for the, the rotation that we see in terms of exposure through from physical to the arguably less operationally geared likes of Kazatom Prom to the more operationally geared next gens, UR energies, which have, yes, some development risk on one side, but don't have that development risk for the likes of your energy. Both of them have expansion optionality um, from an exploration standpoint in the likes of NextGen's case, likewise for your energy, but also bringing through some of the, uh, the project pipelines that are already in place at um, UR. And I'd say that the biggest differential that we would say retail investors in particular would notice that we are underweight Cameco versus um, the likes of NextGen. You know, there we see the, the leverage. Yes, we see the liquidity requirements that much of the investment community requires in the likes of Cameco. But coming back to an earlier point, it's closed end. We see better value in the likes of NextGen and those investments that I just discussed. Appreciate your thoughts on the, uh, the situation uh, and how you guys kind of view that. And uh, congratulations, uh, you know, price price is everything uh, to some degree, certainly in this business. Uh, congratulations on 30 cents and, and having some some low low position entries. Uh, so on uh, while, while uh, sector sentiment and valuations are low, do you have plans to expand the capital in the fund to increase positions at this time? Is there kind of a thought in that regard? Yes, we go out and um, we have had um, a number of calls, um, in, including inbound 
um, we would like there to be less inertia from the wider institutional investor base and um, and we still think we're relatively unique in terms of the exposure that we offer, the fact that we're already in place and it would be great to be able to issue more meaningful amounts than has currently been the case, but we're certainly continuing that push. Okay, and, and uh, does the Geiger Fund often look to enter uranium equities by private placement? Uh, if so, are there a number of deals you're looking for in the next round of financing, which is probably inevitable at this point? Um, we could invest in entities that would approach us, but we wouldn't look to um, invest in private entities now. Uh, there have been some which have been in the portfolio prior to my my time. I've been here about five or six five or six years now. But at the moment, the regulatory side of things is quite prohibitive. We prefer to keep things clean. Frankly, now a lot of the equity is is so compressed in valuation, given the outlook, that we don't really feel the need necessarily to go to private. That's something that could change. I'd say we keep, we try and keep our lines of communication open with management, um, and particularly with all of those key investments that we've got on the table. We would look to follow our money in those that require it, and that's how we try and position ourselves. There might be others that would require funding, but I don't think um, we've got too many new names on the list at the moment. So with the Geiger Fund, is there consideration at this point uh, going forward, is there any consideration for holdings outside of just the mining side equities, such as maybe a royalty company, uh, physical funds, uh, maybe a fuel cycle company or otherwise? Um, we would certainly look at the services side of things. I think that's one crunch area which is um, going to go through some considerable growth. It's finding it of any meaningful scale that is going to be the tricky point. We would look probably at, at things like conversion where pricing has certainly improved materially, uh, probably less so at the likes of the enrichment should those investment opportunities come along. Um, that would most likely be through the likes of a potential IPO of Urenco, something which was mooted back in the day, when was that, 2006, seven. In fact, before that, it would be in about 2000 when I was looking at some of the um, nuclear service providers. Uh, but that's really struggled to come to fruition. It may happen. We'll see what happens with the fragmentation of um, the older Riva, now Urano. Um, we might be interested should some of those businesses spin off into the public um, arena. Uh, but at the moment, I think most of the sort of nuclear-related services are um, tiny portions of much, much bigger conglomerates in the likes of Korea than we would really see um, as investable. Um, we have a slight position in CNNC, the um, utility um, Hong Kong list, um, but really that's about as diverse as we would look to go. So, Keith, there are probably some considerations for going with companies that have liquidity on big exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange. What, what's your thoughts with, with institutionals looking at some of these companies and some of these companies that are listed on you know, bigger exchanges that have really good liquidity? Do you, do you see those as kind of maybe kind of first movers to some degree? What, what's your thoughts on that? I think that's, that's, that's fair. I think there's there's no doubt that the likes of Cameco in part support the the implied uh, valuations that they have. You know, for example, to illustrate that, say in the 50s, uh, as a price for uranium versus much less than that in 
in the likes of next gen uh, or you know UR energy um i think um in part that is a reflection of the liquidity hurdles by some of the the larger investment institutions most of this sector quite frankly wouldn't make it on <laughs> and um and in part that i think was the reason that the URA ETF um rebadged itself and diversified into some of the the korean conglomerates some of the uh, gold producers that have as a byproduct in South Africa some uranium into the likes of BHPs which has Olympic dam obviously but is a tiny portion of the overall um because it was looking to it was struggling to fulfill its liquidity requirements and actually having an impact on the volatility of the underlying but i think that probably stands geiger out as a more pure play as opposed to trying to diversify as that strategy ultimately is um at this stage Right, the, the URA uh, fund is certainly uh, <laughs> certainly an interesting ETF. Uh, yeah. Quite, quite. Um, so, Keith, why should investors use Geiger to get exposure to the sector over formulating their own basket of uranium businesses? Tell us, tell investors what advantages Geiger offers. Um, it's listed. You can move on it now. Um, I think the main advantage, though, is the fact that myself, uh, my colleague Rob, who's um, been very involved, equally involved as myself, have met so many of the companies that we've got a very good insight into it. And I think that should provide investors with a a, de a large degree of comfort in, um, in our knowledge of the sector and um, our ability to have lines of communication in with the management and have a finger on the, on what we think is the pulse. And, you know, we've got geological backgrounds, we've got my sort of physics background, which is arguably helpful. Um, some might argue against that. And we're primed to go. Um, it's not, not difficult. We think we have got a strategy which is optimal in terms of how we have positioned the investments for the fund. I think those are the key points. Keith, so how can in interested investors reach out to the fund for more information? Um, they could go on to the NCIM website, if you put that into a Google browser, um, that should pull up um, access to our fund offering. And the fact sheets that we do on a monthly basis, the reports that we provide on a semi-annual basis, type in Geiger Counter NCIM, um, then it should come up on your browsers. Okay, great. Well, Keith, thanks for sharing your insights and information. Uh, we look forward to talking again soon. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure.